The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. Today I have with me in the studio Dr. Joseph Piper, the President and Professor of Historic and Systematic Theology at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Dr. Piper, on a monthly basis, handles some of your questions that you submit. So we are glad to have him here in the studio and I'm going to ask him to open us with a word of prayer. Thank you, Zach. Our Father, you are a good and gracious God, and we praise you, a God of wonderful compassion. You are full of grace, compassion. You are slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. We thank you, the God who pardons our sins and who is sanctifying us, the God who is teaching us by his Spirit through his Word. And we ask today as we... Uh, Consider many questions that have to do with the Word, that your Spirit indeed would illumine our understanding, give us light and wisdom uh, for your glory and honor. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Before we dive into the questions, there are a couple of events that are coming up here at the seminary that I wanted to highlight for our listeners. The first one that I wanted to bring up has to do with Dr. Piper. He'll be teaching a course on preaching that begins on July 29th, runs through August 4th. There is still space left in the class for those of you who might be interested in coming up to Greenville in August to, uh, to study this most important ordinance in God's church. This is um, this is something that Dr. Piper teaches every couple of years. He'll handle 10 sermons from prominent Reformed preachers and evaluate them on criteria outlined in Dabney's Evangelical Eloquence, which is the current title for the book, published by the Banner of Truth. And this year, he'll also be using Murray Capel's book, The Heart is a Target, which is about preaching to the heart, through the mind, to address matters of the will. So... If you're interested in that, go to gpts.edu slash summer, and you'll be able to find information about registering and downloading the form to do that. Or you can contact the seminary here, 864-322-2717. The other uh, event that we have coming up is the first time we've done this. This is a fall Explore GPTS, where we set aside two days here at the seminary to welcome prospective students and their pastors or their families as they uh, as they consider their different options for seminary. And uh, we usually do that in the spring, and we're, we're going to continue doing that in conjunction with our Spring Theology Conference, but we wanted to begin doing that in the fall as well. We have a couple men who have already expressed interest to me, and um, you know there's plenty of room for that. It is completely Completely free to sit in on some classes, meet our professors, and uh, we've scheduled it in such a way that you'll have opportunities to explore some of the local churches here where you'll receive invaluable training as well. So let's dive into our first question. Uh, it has to do with a video that's circulating on the internet, and Dr. Piper might give a few more details about that, but the question comes from Taiwan, from uh, PCA teaching elder Joel Linton, who is serving in Taiwan. He asks, how do you articulate and defend why dance should be excluded from a worship service? A more general question, how can we help correct churches that are embracing aberrant worship practices I do not know of any presbyteries that have investigated or disciplined local churches regarding this issue, the issue being the incorporation of liturgical dance 
in worship services. Thank you, Joel. Um, I know many of you have seen seen this video of a prominent PCA church where there are three men uh, doing uh, a modern uh, dance routine as an offertory. Um, I find the uh, the video to be disturbing for any number of reasons, not simply the dance, but other things as well that I'm sure you will notice as you, uh, if you look at the video. Um, this has been a growing problem in the Presbyterian Church in America. Started a number of years ago at another prominent uh, PCA church. And it best I understand it, there is no biblical warrant uh, for introducing uh, liturgical dance into uh, corporate worship. A lot of reasons for this. Let me just quickly mention the regular principle of worship. We are only to do in worship and must do those things that God reveals to us in His Word exclusively. And that revelation is by explicit instruction or by what we would refer to as good and necessary inference, that if A, B, and C are true, the combination of A, B, and C must be true as well. So the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, is a doctrine that's developed by good and necessary inference. So we look for the doctrinal inferences for the approved examples in Scripture. No place in tabernacle worship that the corporate part of tabernacle worship, temple worship, or synagogue worship uh, was uh, liturgical dance ever included. Those who promote it say, well, Miriam led a group of ladies with tambourines, and the Psalms have a couple of references to uh, praising God in dance. Let's just take one example, Psalm 140. 49. And we have to note the location of Psalm 149 and 150, which are the psalms that have this particular reference to dance. 149, verse 3, praise him with dancing, let them sing praises to him with timbrel and lyre. 150, uh, praise him with trumpet sound, harp and lyre, timbrel and dancing, stringed instruments and pipe, loud cymbals, resounding cymbals. As I said, the first thing you notice is that these psalms conclude the Psalter, and they're what I call whole life praise offered to God. That's quite clear in Psalm 149 as it moves from the congregation to all of life. And so, verse 5, let the godly ones exult in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds, let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. So obviously, the exhortations to praise here have to do with all of life, living to God's glory, and not simply uh, corporate worship. The same is true with Psalm 150. But moreover, if you look at the 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 specific context, and you consider Hebrew parallelism, verse 3 of 149, praise his name with dancing, sing praises to him with timbrel and lyre, and 150, trumpet sound, harp, lyre, timbrel, dancing, stringed instruments, and pipe. Within the Hebrew parallelism, there is the suggestion that dance is not actually the proper translation here. The, the Hebrew consonants that are used for dance um, are also used uh, for a musical instrument. 
And so, actually, I prefer to translate both of these psalms that this is a, with a musical instrument, which fits exactly the flow of the text. Uh, so, we don't have an ex a commandment. We don't have any example in Scripture. And the type of dancing that you, you would see, for example, David before the ark was not in corporate worship, uh, and it was an exuberant expression of joy in the presence of God. In no place would a choreographed dance ever meet any of these specifications. Um, at best, you would have a, a charismatic type dancing in the aisles and things such as that, as we see in some churches. I don't think that's biblical either. But surely choreographed dancing um, is not biblical. Another thing is it communicates nothing to the mind. Remember the principle that Paul lays down in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Everything done in worship is to be for edification. And there is nothing edifying uh, in ballet or choreographed dancing. It can be entertaining, but it's not edifying. And in fact, in this particular video, it's just the opposite of edifying. There are moves in the uh, dance that are highly suggestive and have no place uh, in any Christian experience whatsoever. So I think that it's, it's wrong for these reasons. Now, how can we help churches? Well, one of the problems we have in the PCA is from day one, PCA's Presbyterian Church in America, we never adopted a directory of worship. We're the first Presbyterian church in the history of Presbyterianism since the Westminster Assembly that when it adopted its form of government did not adopt the directory of worship. So our directory of worship is not mandatory outside of the section on um, the sacraments. So we kind of already have from the foundation a free-for-all spirit. And then in the last 25 years, some leading uh, Reformed men like John Frame in his book on worship have advocated dance as a proper way of uh, worshiping God according to the wisdom of the elders. And so we've got an anarchy, a free-for-all, but the first thing we have to do is worship God well in our own churches, to have rich, full, biblical, reformed worship that is meaningful, full of joy. The second thing we need to do is to try to teach, and so that we're trying to encourage others with respect to proper worship. Now, with respect to this video, after having viewed it once and a little bit a second time, I think that somebody in that presbytery needs to bring charges. I think that what happens in that video is blasphemous and has no place in the worship of God's people. But it's up to local presbyteries or people in local presbyteries to do these types of things. Other presbyteries can send letters of inquiry as to why this went on and would you please reconsider. But it really needs to be uh, taken in hand um, locally. You don't need much investigation when they publish it on um, Vimeo and other web uh, videos now. So you know what happened. It happened at a communion service, which is obvious from the fact of what's on the table in front of the platform. So we need to mourn this. God says in the second commandment that he hates false worship. Calvin uses that language, that God abominates false worship. And I think because we want to be nice and because we want to be Christian gentlemen, that we have become way too tolerant for these types of, of practices in, in the Presbyterian Church in America.
So, Joel, thank you for the question. We share your concern. We plead with God to have mercy on this church in these days. Frankly, I looked at the video, and what came to my mind as I've been reading the prophet Jeremiah is Baal worship. There's a real syncretism, I think, that's taking place here as well. One question that comes to mind, and maybe some of our listeners are thinking as well, is there any room for dance in the ministry of the church at all whatsoever? Is the church a place that could um, host recitals for dances or organize things of that nature, or even promote those kinds of things from the pulpit? Christians surely may be involved in the arts, and church buildings may be used. Our, Our building in Houston, we made it available for piano concerts and things like that because we were blessed with a wonderful uh, piano. I don't think the church should sponsor these things. We get to the doctrine that we've talked about, I think, last month, the spirituality of the church. But Christians can surely be involved in these things. And then one thing that we've done in our churches is when we have our fellowship suppers, we often would have talent night and the different people in church that play musical instruments and have different artistic abilities then do that for the congregation. Uh, but in terms of sponsoring a concert uh, like that or a ballet or something, I don't think the church should do that, but I think the church facilities uh, may be open. Although uh, in this particular trio, I, th- I found that the very movements to be, as I said, objectionable. But if the church had a big stage and a local group wanted to do a classical ballet on it or something like that or, or whatever, uh, there's nothing sacred about the building. And so, yes, Christians may be involved in the arts. We may use our facilities in that way. But I don't think the church should—the one time a church, I think, can do a concert is if it was an evangelistic outreach type of activity. Uh, I know some churches have done this in England and um, had William Edgar come and and play the piano and then make a kind of low-key gospel uh, presentation woven into the explanation of the development of jazz and things like that. So there's a lot of things that churches can do outside of worship. And the reason I ask that ties into the next question that we're going to handle, which deals with um, the issue of ex- self-expression and performance in singing. But I, and I just want to draw that, make that bridge between dancing and singing to show it's not that Christians ought to be against culture or against the arts but rather we need to be for the proper conduct of our worship. Worship in a way that pleases the Lord is worship that is in spirit and in truth, and it's a way in a way that's regulated by God's Word. We're going to move on to a next question here from Patty Palmer. And Patty wrote in that God has blessed her with talents to be able to sing, that she's sung in choirs for decades. She says, I have an opportunity to sing with a choir in the near future. The music is the Coronation Mass by Mozart. It's in Latin. The translation is very biblical. For instance, we sing about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My question is this. Am I able to sing this piece even though it was written originally for the Roman Catholic Church? Although we're singing it in a large Catholic church overseas, it's not as part of a worship service or a mass. A follow-up question is, should we listen to such music for the enjoyment of it, knowing that the words can truly give glory to to God. Patty, thank you for a very thoughtful question. I have uh, no difficulty whatsoever with uh, choral groups doing uh, requiem masses, coronation masses, such as the one you mentioned uh, by Mozart, nor singing in Latin, as long as it's not in a, uh, a worship service. So yes, I think you can uh, uh, sing in this. You're singing in a large 
Roman Catholic, let me just uh, say something. You, you said Catholic, but as William Perkins said, we are Reformed Catholics. We always want to say Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic Church overseas. Um, it's not part of a worship service. So is the building simply being used because it's of, of a size for a concert like this, or is the concert being promoted by that Roman Catholic parish? That would be a big difference for me. If it's promoted by the parish, then it's going to be part of their own PR to attract people to the parish. That might create, although I still think it's a matter of liberty um, on your part, that could create some problems for me. But if you're simply using the venue because it's large and got good acoustics and it's available, uh, then uh, I don't think that anything is wrong. And in terms of listening to such music for enjoyment, it's interesting, when uh, Handel wrote The Messiah, that was actually the scandal that was going on in London. Um, there were Christians, evangelicals, that were concerned that uh, these biblical texts were being taken now for entertainment. Um, I think that, you know, we don't have that kind of discussion today, and I don't think it's necessary. I, I think that... Um, it's music and lyrics written to the glory of God. It's uh, accurate in its truth. It's going to, for a Christian to be more than entertainment, but it, uh, is, it's the kind of edifying entertainment that uh, I think we ought to have in contrast to what I said in the last question when you have some things that would not be edifying. So, yes, I, I enjoy pieces like that. And I'm glad you have the talent to be able to participate in that. Thank you for the question, Patty. I think that this is an issue that a lot of our listeners would deal with. It's one that I've encountered over the years in singing in choirs professionally and with schools. And so I appreciate the question as well. Please continue submitting us questions in that vein. I think those kinds of questions don't come in all too often to the podcast, but they're important. And I, and I believe that, uh, you know, Dr. Piper's answers are helpful to more than just you or me. So moving on, we have a, a textual question now dealing with um, definite atonement. It's from Joseph Gonzalez, and he asks, Dr. Piper, can you explain Second Peter 2.1 in light of definite atonement? That's Second Peter 2.1 for those of our listeners who have their Bibles in front of them. I'll read it, though. This is uh, Peter's dealing with false prophets, and he begins by saying, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. What we have here is the fact that within the church, uh, in the Old Covenant, there were false prophets that were uh, members of the church. And Peter's making the parallel in the New Covenant church. There are going to be false teachers. But they are part of the church, which means that corporately, covenantally, they're in the covenant uh, externally, legally, whatever term one wants to use. I prefer those two terms. They are considered then to be part, to be Christians. And as they're considered Christians, the judgment of charity as they're in the church is that they obviously have been purchased by Christ. So what Peter is pointing out here is that in their false teaching, they are denying the Lord whom they claim is their uh, Redeemer by being Christian teachers. 
But uh, at the end of the day, if they remained impenitent, then they would be reprobate and not elect, and Christ would not have died for their sins. Thank you for the question, Joseph. I hope that was helpful. Our next question comes from Jared Pennings, who asked, Can you explain the distinctions between GPTS and other Reformed and Presbyterian seminaries? Well, Jared, uh, I prefer to always just simply focus on what we're about as a seminary and let you learn uh, about uh, other seminaries in particular. We had a a similar question either last month or the month uh, before as well. Um, We have a new... Uh, motto that well summarizes what we're about. You want to give that to us, Zach? Yeah, the new motto, Jared, is equipping preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom. And that really encapsulates our areas of focus in terms of what we're doing. We're equipping men to serve in Christ's church uh, for the advancement of his kingdom. And how we're equipping them is uh, is to be uh, serving as preachers, pastors, and churchmen. And we're careful to use the word equipping because that means giving a man the tools for ministry. And then he takes those tools, and while he's with us, either by distance or here in residence, we, uh, we, we require him to be serving in the church in order to train, to have those tools sharpened and put to use and tested. We have a number of distinctives that are very important. Some schools will share some of these I don't know that anyone would actually share all of the distinctives. The, the first one, indeed, is the commitment to the Bible alone as the Word of God, and, of course, all the Presbyterian Reformed seminaries would share in that. But we take that to the original text, the inspired um, Greek and Hebrew text, and we uh, want our men to graduate being able to handle the Greek and Hebrew text exegetically in the preparation of their sermons. So we have a very strenuous language program that does take seriously then uh, the Bible is the Word of God. Our second, and this in, within Presbyterianism would be uh, unique to us, is a very um, single-minded, uh, steadfast commitment to the Westminster Standards. And so we hold to what is called uh, strict or full subscription. So all board members and all faculty members annually subscribe that we hold to all the doctrines that are in the standards. Now, I say the doctrines because there are places for exegetical scruples. For example, uh, one of our board members um, is historic pre-mill, and uh, he scruples about the one resurrection, but he still believes in the coming of Christ and the, and the resurrection, or he holds to the uh, text that leaves out the doxology in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. And so since that's added in the confession, he would say that he, uh, you know, would not, does not think that that is part of that. But that's the extent of uh, the exceptions that we take. And we don't, we don't require our students we're very much like the church in this regard. A church ought to require its office bearers to subscribe in this manner, but not its members. And so our students have to be orthodox in terms of uh, uh, Trinitarians who believe uh, in Christ alone for salvation and are pursuing holiness, except the Bible is the Word of God, kind of the basic things for a credible profession of faith, in addition to manifesting gifts and such. But as a faculty... 
and thus our teaching is uh, premised by that. We don't have a cafeteria approach then. You know, come to Greenville Seminary, that it's going to be six-day creation, Sabbatarian, high views of worship, as well as the other doctrines that are in the Westminster Standards. Um, a third distinctive is ties in very much to the motto, and that is we are here to prepare men to be preachers. We, we have an MA program. We occasionally have uh, a lady take those courses, and we have other people take the men take those courses to prepare for service in the church. But they're simply in our MDiv program. Our co- every course is catered to ministers, except um, in our Master of Ministry for Deacons, we would have a course that would focus on more particularly on the work of deacons. But everything else we teach is focusing on preparing men to be preachers and pastors and churchmen. And thus, all of our curriculum moves toward the pulpit. And whether it's in systematics or in the languages or in church history or whatever, we're constantly coming back to pastoral issues, but also to preaching. And in connection with that, our homiletics approach, our curriculum, our methodology, has been very blessed of the Lord. And we get reports from presbyteries all over in terms of the ability of our men in the, in the pulpit. Uh, one other thing I'll just mention here, and that is that is very distinctive, and that is that we're two-thirds to three-fourths less expensive than uh, the other uh, Presbyterian uh, seminaries. The, the kind of rule of thumb in, in graduate education is, or even in, in at the university and college level, is that a school gets about 70% of its income uh, from its students and 30% from donors. We flip that. We get less than 30% from our students. And thus, we are much more dependent on the Lord and then on the churches and individuals that support Greenville Seminary. But that keeps our tuition very low. And um, so we have a four-year program, but you can come to Greenville and do the four-year program, graduate with a real grasp of the languages and and a very full curriculum, and still have paid much less money than going someplace else on a three-year program. All of those are very important, and we had this question come up at our recent Explore GBTS in the spring, and Dr. McGraw handled it, at least at first, among the faculty. And one of the points he made is um, we, we are you know, wholeheartedly committed to equipping men for preaching ministry here at Greenville. And so it's it's always a matter of focusing on what it is that we do rather than focusing on uh, some perceived lack of another school or something like that. But Jared, um, I appreciate your question. And this is something I think about a lot as the admissions um, coordinator or director here. And I'm certainly going to follow up with you, brother. Let me add as well is that uh, I have friends at, at most of the other seminaries, and I pray uh, for those seminaries uh, regularly in, in their ministry and that God will, will bless uh, their ministry. So we prefer not to see ourselves in competition. We have a vision for what a minister ought to be, and that's really what, what drives us. Thanks, Dr. Piper. We have a question that just came in on our, um, on our live listening feed from student Trent Still down in Springfield, South Carolina. And Trent asks... Ask Dr. Piper if we are to give our children the judgment of charity until proven unconverted. Mm. Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> the, um, for a two-year-old to say, I love Jesus, is a credible profession of faith. 
Now, if he's saying, I love Jesus, and he's throwing temper tantrums seven hours a day and is not correctable, uh, the judgment of charity at that point gets stretched a good bit. No, I think that we need to understand that we, we hold Christ before our covenant children, press on them the need of, of new hearts and resting in Jesus, but we don't assume that they're unconverted because they're little. And so when they say that they love Jesus, they believe in Jesus, we accept that. And that's why in, in Pado Baptist churches, we teach our children to pray. So not only do we pray for them, we pray with them. We teach them to pray, uh, to recognize God as their Father and Christ as their Savior. If, as they begin to develop, they do develop patterns of behavior that are contrary to what it means to be born again, then we begin to press on them um, the need of being born again and to take hold of Christ. And if they continue in this course of action, then that would give evidence that they've not been born again. I have so many follow-up questions to your answer, Dr. Piper but it will take up the rest of our time. So I'll let our listeners submit those questions um, in intervening months rather than hop on them uh, myself. We'll move on to our you next... You can co- submit a question occasionally. I can? Oh, hey. oh well, that's great. Usually I, if I were to Not do live. that... <laughs> Write it out. <laughs> if I'm going to do that, I'll do that through my wife. So okay. at least that way uh, it has the appearance of coming from somebody else. I, I jest, of course, I jest. So our next question comes from Joseph McGowan. And Joseph asks, can you explain the Reformed position on spiritual gifts? I have a brother who recently decided to become... A charismatic. You know, Joseph, um, as I understand the Reformed and biblical position on the gifts, is that all of the extraordinary gifts were apostolic gifts, and they were given for two reasons. They were given first uh, as an attestation of apostolic authority, and second, they were given in the interim when the church did not have a completed canon so that... Uh, God would be helping local congregations deal with spiritual matters that would be coming up, our interpretations of the Old Testament that we have spelled out for us in our New Testaments that they did not have. And what are the extraordinary gifts that accomplish these things? The gifts are listed, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 27. Now you're Christ's body and individually members of it, and God has appointed the church, first apostles, prophets, teachers, then miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, tongues, um, and all are not apostles, all are not prophets, all are not teachers. Now in this list, Paul is dealing with both extraordinary and regular. I meant to go earlier in the chapter Start with verse 7. But to each one's given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one's given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. Now John Owen points out this first list are all extraordinary gifts. I think the word of wisdom, 
um, has to do in the word of knowledge with uh, revelation uh, that would be given to the church uh, to help her tread these waters, as, as I've just as mentioned. Uh, the uh, faith is the the insight I have that Christ is willing to heal this particular person that Peter and John would have had when they went up to the temple in Acts uh, chapter 3. Um, miracles then, the ability to do various uh, supernatural works. Prophecy here is not the proclaiming of the Word of God, but the foretelling of certain events. Distinguishing of spirits is the ability to know if this is, in fact, of the Holy Spirit as it takes place in the service, and then tongues and interpretation of tongues. Now, the reason I say it's in the first place for the attestation, or maybe I should say how is it for the attestation of the apostles, if you flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, because there's these pseudo-apostles that follow him around trying to discredit his ministry, and they've been active in Corinth. And he's dealing with them, and he says in verse 12 of chapter 12, the signs of a true apostle's apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now the question we have to ask is, if the Corinthian church had, as Paul says, these various gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. In what way were they signs of an apostle? The apostle had these gifts, probably all of the gifts. But secondly, the apostle alone could confer those gifts to others. So this is one of the arguments for the cessation of gifts. We get this, for example, in Romans chapter 1, when Paul is explaining to the Romans why he really wants to uh, be uh, there in their midst, and he says that his reason in coming, verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gifts to you that you may be established. And so the apostle had the gifts, and the apostles then would go to these churches and impart these gifts to others. And that was the sign of the apostolic office. So this is why you'll see in church history, after the death of the apostles, the canon still wasn't completed. You would have some of these gifts manifested because people would have received them. But no new impartation of gifts could be given. And that's the, the basic argument. And in the completion of canon, I follow Jonathan Edwards in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that what Paul's writing about there is not heaven but the completion of the Word of God when he says, love never fails, their gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If their tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it'll be done away. And that's that knowledge, revelatory knowledge. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I know fully, just as also I have been fully known. Now, Paul can't be talking about heaven. We're not going to know fully in heaven um, either. God is incomprehensible. Our knowledge will all be, always be finite. But he's speaking here relatively takes the language that is used of Moses, with whom God spoke face to face, to show there's going to be a completed revelation, not tied to an individual, but it's going to be in the Scriptures. And thus, 
Paul says that when the fullness comes, prophecy and tongues and knowledge will be done away with. So when their purpose was met, the church now has a faithful guidebook. We don't need gifts of knowledge or wisdom or prophecy in the local congregation. Uh, the ministry of the gospel, Calvin, in the introduction of the Institutes, the Roman Catholic said, well, you've got this new gospel. Where are your miracles? He said, we don't have a new gospel. We don't need miracles. Our gospel has been attested by the miracles of the New Testament. And so that work's been accomplished. And that's, these are basic reasons. I would come in to you, uh, Joseph, and for your brother, uh, I hope it's still available, uh, Apostolic Signs by Walt Chantry. I think it's a very useful book that gets into uh, these things in a very helpful way. Thank you, Dr. Piper. This is a relevant issue to both of us. We both have friends in the charismatic movement, and I grew up um, under the preaching of a charismatic pastor, and I was converted under his uh, under his preaching. So this is something that, that it's, it's good to be well-equipped with an answer from Scripture. We have a follow-up question to that uh, the question that Trent asked and your answer to it, and it's a follow-up question that came in live from Silas Menezes, uh, in uh, Recife, Brazil, asks this follow-up question, and he asks, what about Westminster Confession of Faith 10.3? And I'm just, it's a short paragraph, I'll read it. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. These would be people that would be so severely handicapped as to be unable to respond to um, to uh, the outward call. So he asks, I've heard some Reformed preachers or pastors teaching that um, all believers' sons are included in this term elect. Could we make this kind of statement? How do we understand that? I don't think we can make that uh, uh, statement. Um, the fathers and the Westminster Standards were very wise when they spoke of those who died in infancy uh, that elect, uh, well, maybe I misunderstood, but let me, I'll, I'll circle back, that this will refer to children not even in, in Christian families. This can refer to children in pagan countries. That, yeah. that um, the, the, the standards are pointing out that uh, those incapable physically incapable, not geographically incapable. The next paragraph goes on to show that apart from Christ, no one can be saved. But those physically incapable that are elect are saved on the basis of the atoning work of Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I I think I misheard the follow-up question. Yes, can we assume that all children of believers who die in infancy are elect? Yes, I think we can. I think on the basis of uh, two passages, uh, David's confession uh, when his baby died, that I cannot bring him back, but I'll go to him. And then Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 7 about the children being Christian. They're federally Christian, and those that die in infancy, the judgment of charity is that they are in the covenant and that uh, they are are with the Lord. So I do take that position. Other Reformed people will 
prefer to be more cautious and simply use the language if they're elect, they're with the Lord. That that makes a big difference for your pastoral practice, it does. whether you believe it really this or does. not. You have somebody in your congregation or in your family whose child passes away uh, before attaining to that age of reason when he or she, the little one, can make a profession of faith one way or another. And um, you know, this is a difference between saying, oh, you, you can be assured that that this child is elect, and that you will go to him or to her. Right. So if that's what you're asking, then yes, I agree with the pastors that say that the children that die in infancy. Now, you got to watch the language there of that age of exact term Zach used. But what did I say? Age of reason or age something? Age of reason. Yeah. I think the Bible says when they're able to know their right hand from their left hand is pretty much how the Bible defines that age of accountability, which is not 12. It's more like one and a half or two. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our next question comes from uh, our good friend, John Clare up in Virginia. He asks, surprisingly, it seems as if the name John Knox is seldom heard on the lips of Presbyterians in our day. What distinctive contribution did John Knox make to the Reformed tradition generally and Presbyterianism specifically? He's been reading a book on Knox. I think Reed's book on Knox. So this is on his mind. Okay. Scottish Presbyterianism owes its entire heritage, so to speak, to to John Knox. He uh, was with Calvin in Geneva. Um, he, I believe, was part of the group that translated the Geneva Bible uh, with its notes. Uh, he instituted then a Presbyterianism in Scotland that had... Uh, a number of good things uh, about it that we ought to emulate. One was early on parish system that Chalmers then re-instituted when the Free Church was formed in the mid-19th century. Christian education was another thing to which Knox was uh, uh, very uh, committed. And he had a very high view of worship. Now, it's interesting, the, the, the worship in Scotland, and I deal with Knox's liturgy, uh, John in the worship course was a very proper biblically Presbyterian liturgical worship, very similar to what Calvin had in Geneva. Somehow, after the Westminster Directory, Scottish worship became very, I, I use the word bald, B-A-L-D. Um, it was all of the, uh, of the older uh, things were taken out, the Lord's Prayer, the Creed. It became very much like the Congregationalist at, at the Westminster Assembly, and I don't know why that happened, but that was not where Knox was. Now, he was uh, an exclusive psalmist uh, and promoted, as I said, a high view of worship, a high Presbyterianism. He was also a very uh, passionate and bold uh, preacher, and God greatly blessed his ministry in Scotland. And, of course, I think we are as much... Um, heirs of Knox or maybe heirs of Calvin through Knox uh, and ought to think of ourselves in that way. That reminds me today, at least when we're broadcasting live and recording this particular episode, it's July 10th. Today's the 508th birthday of John Calvin. I saw that before we went live, but it is amazing that we are still talking about these men hundreds of years after they lived and, and walked the earth and administered. And why? because they sought to faithfully bring the Word of God to bear in every area of life. And that's what John Knox did in Scotland, transformed a nation. Um, but more than that, it, it served, I think, 
the first half of your question, John, um, to, re- to the Reformed tradition generally, it served to um, propel the Reformed tradition forward um, in history. The first question, or five, comes from Jani Tepereinen, who asks, does my faith produce good works before God? And Dr. Pipe is going to combine that with a question from Chris Zalea, which asks, what is Dr. Pipe's take on the debate about believers' good works and their good works' relationship to final salvation? I thank both of you for very important questions. And really, they're both answered in uh, Westminster Confession 16, paragraph 2, the chapter on good works. These good works, now the good works have been defined in chapter 1, are the things which God has commanded, and those things alone. These good works are done in obedience to God's commandments, are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. Now that answers Johnny's question, that true faith produces good works. Zach, like the expression I used in my sermon at the uh, conference that uh, faith is like a female rabbit who has lots of babies. And so when the confession talks about saving faith, it says uh, in chapter 14 that by faith alone uh, we are justified, but that faith is never alone. 11.2, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification, yet it's not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So faith works by love. And the thing to realize here is that faith is product of regeneration. Regeneration is the creation of a new heart, center of being, and the person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit who is active then in the believer, so that if you truly have faith in Christ, that faith is going to produce good works. So the works will be fruits of your faith as the Spirit works in the new heart, and they're evidences. By them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are. That goes back to Ephesians 2.10. Whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. And this gets to Chris's uh, question then, is that, uh, yes, good works are necessary for final salvation. Justification is not an end in itself. It is the basis of our legal acceptance before God. But just notice how many times the Bible emphasizes perseverance and endurance. And so the justified person has true faith, is going to obey, serve God from a new heart, and those good works are also necessary then. So Hebrews says, pursue that sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord. So I like to put it, our, our works do not get us into heaven, but will not go to heaven without them. That's a good way of putting it. And you, you may hear some uh, illustrations that we need to walk a, a, a straight and narrow way on, a, on an elevated path that's kind of uh, 
cut off on one side with a ditch and then on another side with a ditch. You don't want to fall into either one of the ditches, either of neonomianism or antinomianism when it comes to our works, right? Right. Well, if you take a step back from it, it's really not two ditches. What you are, you're walking on a bridge above a chasm, and it's the same problem underneath the bridge. So whether you fall off on the left side or the right side, you're falling into the same ditch because the presuppositions that undergird either neonomianism or antinomianism are, are the same when it comes to our works and the relationship between our works and salvation. For the sake of our listeners, neo-nomianism is the view that uh, works play a role in our acceptance with God, our justification. Yep, and antinomianism. Is then, because we're justified, we are free of any obligation to the law of God. So we want to avoid both of those, um, which are really operating on the same um, assumption, I think. So our next question, moving on, is from P.J. Mills. And P.J. asks, how does limited atonement or definite atonement better help us live out our faith? Well, that's a great question and insight, P.J. It's important to realize that uh, particular redemption, definite atonement, I prefer both of those over limited. The atonement is, it's the evangelical position that limits the atonement uh, because it says that Christ died to make salvation possible particular redemption or definite atonement is the position that Christ has fully accomplished salvation. And what that means is not only, again, your justification, but the entire package. So in the canons of Dort, when it talks about the atonement, it says that Christ has purchased for us everything. He's purchased for us the very faith uh, that we exercise in coming to Christ. Uh, Peter makes this clear in that first sermon in Acts chapter 3, uh, well, his second sermon uh, in, in Acts chapter 3, as he uh, speaks of what has happened uh, in this uh, man's uh, life whom they healed. He said, and on the basis of faith, verse 16, in his name, it's the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. But notice this, and the faith which comes through him, through Jesus, has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So at the very beginning, we see that uh, the faith that's a gift of God, Ephesians 2, uh, 8 and 9, the faith that's a gift of God has actually been purchased for us by Christ, as has our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, our perseverance, uh, and so everything that we have, all of our inheritance, if we put it in that way, all that we have is our inheritance in Christ has all been purchased for us by Christ. And so you see, when you begin to look at it that way, you can live out your faith because you recognize that he who's begun a good work in you will bring it to perfection. And that you, uh, the work cannot fail. That as you struggle with a particular sin, and you mourn over that, and you wrestle with that. You realize that in Christ that you have uh, the victory. You can reckon yourself dead to that sin and claim the power of Christ, and thus the whole idea of union with Christ goes back to particular redemption. Because Christ now, who's died for us by His Spirit, indwells us and is applying to us the fullness of what He's accomplished. And this is the beauty of the Lord's Supper then, 
is that when the Christian comes to the Lord's table, he's taking hold of Christ and the fullness of his benefits. So there's just lots of ways that particular redemption help us live out our faith. And that dovetails nicely into our next question, which is an issue that, um, especially early on in my Christian walk, I really had a difficult time with. And that is, uh, it's a question from Luke Thompson who asks, how can I value more or increase my esteem for the Lord's Supper and its benefits? You know, that is just uh, a wonderful question. Um, Luke, I... um, I've grown in my own appreciation uh, of, the, of the Lord's Supper uh, a good bit in, in the last few years. And I have found the larger catechism uh, discussion of the Lord's Supper from 168 uh, through 175 to be very useful for meditation, both in terms of the meaning of the Lord's Supper and part of this to realize this it's not merely a, a memorial. It is a memorial. It's a sign. It brings to memory. Um, but we should be much more uh, expansive on what's represented there. We have represented the incarnation in the body and blood. These people that say that we need pictures of Jesus for our children to know that he has a true human nature, he gave us the picture. And that's the Lord's Supper. And our children, as they witness this, not taking it, but witnessing it, are to be told. That bread and that wine teach us that Jesus has a true body and soul just like you. It's a picture of the suffering of Christ, the broken bread, the poured wine, and that we ought to think more on the physical aspect of Christ's suffering, not just the spiritual. He, He atoned for all the miseries of sin. Ligaments were torn apart. Um, he, he poured out his life blood. He was beaten and spit on. And then he was mocked and humiliated as he hanged, perhaps even naked, um, before a, a mocking world. And then, of course, spiritual, that he satisfied the wrath of God. And when I do, and I love doing communion, when I do communion, I emphasize these things. Uh, it's, it's a picture of faith. When you eat and drink something, it goes in union with your body, and this reminds us then that faith brings us into union with Christ. It's a picture of the unity of the body of the church, that um, we are coming together as the one body of Christ. But then, of course, it's a spiritual exercise in that it's a seal, which means it's an authenticating, uh, authoritative testimony. So the Spirit of Christ testifies to us in the Lord's Supper that we are in covenant. We've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ in regeneration, in our baptism, and now we are celebrating. And thus it becomes a means of assurance. But it's also a spiritual meal. And here's the great mystery. And even somebody as great as Calvin wrestled with how to express it. And our, our standards they put it so well that Christ is not corporally present, but he is spiritually present. In some mysterious way, we uh, are partaking of the benefits of the risen Christ. And language defies us in how to, to do that. The church had what was called the sursum cordum, the lifting up of your heart to emphasize that we are partaking of Christ in heaven. And dwell on that that you're feasting on Christ in some way. 
and then you bring to it your weaknesses and your needs and your sins and those things you need Christ, the exalted prophet, priest, and king to help you with. And then I have found that um, there's a very important question and answer uh, in the, um, the larger catechism, 174. You know, I, uh, I can remember my first communion. I'd been, my first real communion, I'd been baptized, communion member in the Roman Catholic Church and was converted in high school. And, but I remember coming to the Lord's table and sitting there and wondering why people were closing their eyes and bowing their heads. I didn't have the foggiest notion of what was going on. And that's why today this question is so important to me. What is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the time of the administration of it? It is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that during the time of the administration, so as you're partaking, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance. That's coming intentionally by faith. Diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions. Heedfully discern the Lord's body affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings, and thereby stir up themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces in judging themselves and sorrowing for sin in earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving of his fullness, trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace, renewing of their covenant with God and love to all the saints. So seek to do those things um, Luke, as you are protecting the Lord's Supper, and it will definitely become much more meaningful to you. I can testify as well that up until the time when I encountered um, the questions in the larger catechism dealing with the Lord's Supper, I had no idea why it was important, why it was of any value to me as a believer. I mean, I, I really, I, had bl- I harbored blasphemous thoughts, you know, charitably to m- my younger self out of ignorance, but I harbored blasphemous t- thoughts um, toward both sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I think in our generation in particular, you see folks going into um, into high church, so-called high church context, Anglicanism, or, or even swimming the Tiber, going back to Roman Catholicism or whatever, because they see a fuller exposition or, or explanation of the sacraments and what they grew up with in, in a mainstream evangelical church or something of the like. Or they go the other way, and they just continue to be hardened against the sacraments, getting baptized ten times as they give their lives to Jesus <laughs> over and over and over again, um, rather than renewing covenant in the Lord's Supper. So it's, uh, it's good to be reformed on this issue. Our sacramentology, I think, is, is biblically informed and, uh, and reformed. Dr. Piper, I think that brings us up against our time. Do you have any closing thoughts or words for our no, listeners? Great questions. We've got a lot more. Keep them coming in. We'll simply do uh, extra edition of Faith and Practice, and we're glad to have so many live listeners. That's very uh, satisfying to me. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.